Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. We are metaphysical animals. Do you remember metanoia, which we translate as repent, but if taken more literally means change how you think, go beyond your mind, go above where where your mind is? Well, metaphysis, go beyond nature, go above nature. To be a metaphysical animal is to recognize that you're something more than just materiality. And the way that it really impacts our life is one of the major ways in which we interact with God in our moral lives uh, through both the acquired and the infused virtues. Uh, Infused virtues come to us by virtue of sanctifying grace. It's when uh, the priest or the bishop, when he Uh, confirms you, talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Those are things that come to us through grace. But we also participate in the virtuous world of acquired virtues. Even non-believers can aspire to justice or prudence or courage or temperance, these uh, cardinal virtues, then all the virtues that are part of that. I just finished reading a book which I really recommend to anyone who has the slightest interest in philosophy, entitled Metaphysical Animals. It's about four women philosophers, Elizabeth Anscombe, Iris Murdoch, Philippa Foote, and Mary Midgley. One's a devout Catholic, Anscombe, who I'm going to talk about. Uh, Two were agnostics, and Philippa Foote was an atheist. But they all criticized philosophy because it had wandered away from the good and just got into these arguments about language. They revolutionized philosophy because philosophy mostly has just been done uh, by white males going back to the pre-Socratics before Plato and Aristotle. Many of them, not all, but many of them unmarried. And so their criticism was for Oxford philosophers, these old bachelor gentlemen, was that moral philosophy looked for these unmarried men like it looked for unmarried men just sitting around a fire sucking down uh, a glass of scotch, uh, smoking a cigar, and just uh, completely bloviating about morality and moral language to the point is that you just destroy it. And so what they were concerned about was how do you talk to Adolf Hitler how do you talk to the, the abysmal, abusive administrators in Japanese prison of war, prisoner of war camps? And so these four women were concerned about how you could have a discussion about moral philosophy if you couldn't even have a common language of philosophy. Does this sound like it's a problem? And so uh, they're all in one way or another Uh, talk about that in uh, their careers. But Metaphysical Animals is a wonderful introduction to the philosophical fights of the 20th 20th century in an understandable way and why these four women philosophers who are now all passed on made such a great difference. But here's a story I want to tell you that I got from the book, um, which I think is a tremendous understanding of a moral philosophy and moral theology. What's the difference? Philosophy is essentially analytic. It's 
how far can your natural reason take you in determining how you'll be happy and what the rules or guidance for that might be like. So for Aristotle and other philosophers in the tradition, up until relatively recently, you know, it revolved around understandings of virtue. But when the Western tradition departs from that, you get people like Immanuel Kant and Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, who talk about rules, that's Immanuel Kant, all you can really know is the rules, the categorical imperatives. This is what you can will, that you can will for everybody, and every reasonable person should will this. You know, it's why we have disarray on uh, the secular world. Or uh, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill doing the most good for the most people, and that's called consequentialism. Those two philosophical schools are deontological ethics, and consequentialism. Uh, Catholics aren't either. It's not that we don't have moral rules. We do. So we sound like uh, Immanuel Kant, but we're not. And it's not that because we're not interested in the good, because we are. It's just we recognize that uh, moral decision-making is often more uh, challenging than that. And there really are other considerations than just the effect of moral philosophy. Um, there are absolutes, that is, rules, things that you simply don't do, no matter how much good you think that comes out of it. And so think about what I just described, about a rule-based philosophical morality, or the idea that you should just make a decision that does the most good for the most people. And so, in 1945, the United States of America and President Harry S. Truman uh, because Franklin Delano Roosevelt had died. Harry S. Truman, the vice president, who was a World War I vet, uh, got put in the position of having to make the decision about whether the atomic bomb would be dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And we know that he made that decision, and he put his name on the bottom of that, um, of that order uh, because he thought he would save so many lives of allied servicemen, including so many Americans, like my dad and probably your grandpas, um, by just making Japan come to the table by these two brutal acts of incinerating these two cities. So between Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and I've heard different figures, but at least 200,000 casualties. How many of them were little kids? How many of them were children in the womb? And so... The idea of a Catholic who says that abortion is always wrong. What happens when you're Harry S. Truman and you have these absolutes, these things you just don't do, killing the innocent and children are innocent, and you put it up against the horrible decision he had to make at the end of the war? Well, after the war was over in 1952, uh, Oxford University decided that it wanted to honor Harry S. Truman and give him an honorary degree at Oxford. And all the Oxford dons, including the philosophy department, agreed and said, this man is worthy of being honored as, uh, with a doctorate at, at Oxford. There was one very public objection to it. And in this all-male environment of Oxford, it was a woman, a Catholic woman, named Elizabeth Anscombe, who has become one of the most consequential 
uh, philosophers in the 20th century and is still written about and influencing young philosophers today. She was a virtue philosopher. She didn't buy into deontological ethics, the idea that it's all rule-based and only rule-based. She didn't buy into uh, the idea of consequentialism, do the greatest good for the greatest number of people because it, they just didn't seem to make sense of the problem of real moral decision-making. And what virtue ethics is about is about what kind of person your decision makes you. Why did Elizabeth Anscombe object to Harry S. Truman getting an honorary doctorate? Because the Oxford Dons who wanted to honor him said that he was only the name at the bottom of a piece of paper and that there were all these other people in the world that were behind him and part of the decision-making. He shouldn't be blamed alone for whatever the evil is in incinerating all those innocent people in those two towns to force the Japanese emperor to his knees. But here's what Elizabeth Anscombe said. She said, it is true that he was just the name at the bottom of a paper. It is true that it's a horrible decision. But she said, that doesn't mean that Oxford has to call it good and give him an honorary degree. We shouldn't take these worst case scenarios and hold them up as some great act of public virtue that needs to be honored. You know, the ancients, Plato and Aristotle, understood that the best we could do in this world is kind of an imperfect happiness through the acquired virtues, like the cardinal virtues of justice, moderation, uh, temperance, and courage. Um, that just being good is really not good enough. Well, if you remember, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As he went through all the, the various beatitudes, the blessings, he was describing himself, the Son of God, who gave his life on a cross. That is the virtuous act of a happy man. So let's take a minute and let's talk about, in this Oral Valley Catholic, the difference between moral philosophy and the kind of goodness you can attain in this life. And then the Beatitudes, which are the virtues acquired through grace um, that lead us to charity and make us saints. Something more is needed to be a saint than just human moral goodness. What we need is the grace of God, and that's the heart of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. So let's turn to the reading for the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time, and let's discuss this issue that Elizabeth Anscombe had to face, and I think talked about in a very faith-filled um, way that helps us to understand the limitations of moral philosophy and goodness in this world. So we're talking about a great book called Metaphysical Animals, and I recounted you the story of Elizabeth Anscombe's principled objection to giving Harry S. Truman a doctorate uh, because of his decision 
uh, as president to drop the atomic weapons and bring the Second World War to a, a decisive and, and brutal end. Uh, it was a brutal conflict. Uh, and let's talk about what enthused her and what helped invigorate her moral philosophy. And it was a profound Catholic faith. And so the reading for the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time is still chapter five, which is where Jesus goes up on the mountains and he starts the Beatitudes, which we talked about last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Because it's always about the kingdom of heaven. That's Christ's presence, the Christological nature of the kingdom of heaven. It's about the interior experience of sanctifying grace, that mystical aspect of the kingdom of heaven in our personal lives. And then the ecclesial dimension, what it's like to live in an imperfect world with other imperfect people uh, in a church that is both uh, rooted in the reality of heaven, but takes place here in our lived life in the parish. Here's the gospel for the fifth Sunday of ordinary time. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It's no longer good for anything, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It's set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus transitions in the Gospel uh, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which all occurs, the Sermon on the Mount, starts with the Beatitudes, and then this is kind of a bridge section talking about the importance of the Beatitudes and the lived life of Christian faith. And then specific kinds of things, um, just like the law and the Torah had specific uh, directives from God. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about anger. He talks about divorce. He talks about um, all these issues that are going to have an effect on our human life, and which we, we'll be talking about more in the uh, next couple of weeks on Oro Valley Catholic and there at, at St. Mark's Church. But think about this gospel where he says, you're salt, you're light, you're a city on the hill. First, this is the Christian vocation. If you want to be a Christian, he's telling you this is what's what is required of you. First, salt. Salt was part of temple sacrifices. It's, uh, they talk about it in the book of uh, Leviticus. But salt is also a preservative. It was used in the ancient world to keep meat from going bad. Still, baklava, I think, in Italy is salted cod. And so the idea of salt is it tries to keep the world from going completely corrupt. St. Augustine said in the city of God, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is in the city of God, that uh, this is never going to be uh, heaven. Uh, his fifth century Roman world, Oral Valley in the 21st century. The role of Christians as salt, and I'm paraphrasing, is to keep the world from getting as bad as it can get. 
And we do that by our own moral objections when we take a very dark turn. It's what the real value of the pro-life movement is, talking to the consciences of individual men and women. Because I think it's fair to say there really isn't enough laws or cops or judges or prisons um, to, to stop evil from happening. That what's really at heart is the battle of good and evil in every soul. And by witnessing about the importance of innocent life, what it means to be a woman and a mother, what it means to be a father and a husband, these are what helps preserve human being from just becoming this mass of, of corruption, uh, starting with uh, the corruption of family and children. So the pro-life movement, a very important part of trying to keep the world from getting as bad as it can get. But at the same time, some recognition that this fight's been going on for a long time uh, and isn't coming to an end probably till Jesus comes back. And so to see correctly what your role is, and it seems the role is to convert people to Christ, that's what the church does. We haven't ever done well with political power. But to keep speaking to po the, po the political powers, to keep speaking to human hearts, this is the role of being salt or light. Um, I talked to a, a young woman who is, uh, works with uh, children who have been abused, and it really is very difficult to see the evil that's done to children and to, to still believe that the world is good, that God is working uh, in bringing out the goodness of people because there's such darkness in people. I would like to point out to her, and I've said it, and it's, you're right that the world's a dark place, but it's because God is light and the Holy Spirit is light that we can shine a light on the darkness of evil. Uh, St. Augustine, again, I love St. Augustine. He says that everything that God made is good, that evil is the absence of good, that people are not participating in God when they participate in evil. So as we shine a light so people see, we're preaching and speaking to the goodness that's there from the Creator, calling them to go beyond where their minds are, metanoia, to change, to think. But it's only because you can shine a light and say there is another way of uh, participating in the goodness of God and uh, participating in goodness, even in an imperfect way in our lives. And then finally, Jesus said, we're a city on a hill. And you know, he's talking about Jerusalem, the place where the temple is, and to say that the church is the city on the hill, the new Jerusalem, the place to which all nations stream. Um, if you just think of the church as a place that maintains and reminds people of what it means to be a human being. This is the essence of evangelization in the Christian life. It's like talking to a person with dementia who has forgotten everybody in their life and forgotten who they are. You keep saying, your grandma, I'm your grandchild. I love you, grandma. She may remember it for 15 seconds, but that is her connection with reality. And so it is with people that get sucked into the darkness of the occult, witchcraft, pornography, just go through the list of uh, the way that the human mind can be darkened. 
and how it is that you can be salt, light, and a place of refuge for them. And so the Sermon on the Mount is about the Christian vocation, who we're called to be. Everybody thinks that evangelization is knocking on a door and handing a, 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 a Christian magazine or a Catholic book or something like that. And yes, that is part of evangelization. evangelization. But fundamentally, evangelization is reminding people that they're children of God, and they're called to a great vocation. Partly, that is what excited Elizabeth Anscombe when she became an adult convert to the Catholic faith from, I think, nothing. A very smart lady. It changed her life. One of my favorite pictures, two favorite pictures of Elizabeth Anscombe, because she was a battler. It's a picture of her in Oxford rows, robes wearing this big conical hat that Oxford dons would wear with a monocle and a cigar because she, I don't think she smoked cigars, wore a monocle or any of that other stuff. She challenged the Oxford uh, University in the 40s and 50s by being a woman that wore trousers uh, to give her lectures as a, as a junior professor there. It wasn't until, I think, 1972 that women were allowed to wear trousers at Oxford. Before that, they weren't even allowed to matriculate or graduate from, from Oxford. It's one of the reasons, like, these four women, uh, Anscombe, Iris Murdoch, who was a famous uh, novelist, Mary Midgley, the great Mary Midgley, who is an, agno an agnostic uh, but writes wonderfully about the life of animals and why loving animals is a good thing. And Philippa Foote, who talked about natural goodness, um, but didn't believe in God, not in any Christian sense. But I say, if you believe in the good, you believe in God. You just don't actually give him that name. But at the heart of it is Christian virtue. Uh, you know, in the letter of Peter, the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And so living a virtuous life, the same life that other people live, uh, is a support to your faith. Um, and it's a virtue animated by charity. And it's charity that uh, elevates virtue, charity that's infused with the love of, of God. Uh, because remember, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, elevate the acquired virtues, the cardinal virtues, of justice, prudence, temperance, and courage, and all the other assorted virtues we all try to live. Um, it's how we walk in God's way. Um, John, in his gospel, chapter 14, uh, verse 6, said, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When you live a life of virtue, you are in an analogous way participating in the life of God. That's why uh, Jesus said in John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And it's really rooted in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. This is the heart of the, of the religion, the faith of Israel, that bloomed in Christianity is spread around the world. Um, it's what righteousness is. Zedekah is the word that means righteousness. 
Abraham believed in God, who accounted to him as Zedekiah's diakosane. Um, righteousness and justice is about how we have right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. In the end, Christian love, Christian charity, isn't a, a natural affection that a husband might feel for his wife and a wife for a husband, parents for a child. That points to the love of God. But fundamentally, the love that raises the infused virtues, the I'm sorry, the acquired virtues, like the cardinal virtues, justice, uh, temperance, prudence, and courage, um, to becoming uh, a life in God is the way that the saints take virtue. And through their faith, they do these amazing things. It's the life of the saint, which is, I think, the fruits of the Beatitudes. So let's take a moment, and as we conclude in Oro Valley Catholic, let's talk about how each of us is called to be a saint in our own walk in life and how that can possibly happen. So let's return to Elizabeth Anscombe. Remember the first story I told you was this. She stood up against all these Oxford dons and said she could probably understand why Harry S. Truman felt like he had to do that. Who wants to be in the position of Harry S. Truman and saying yes to the atomic bomb at Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Uh, if you think that that's to be taken lightly, something is missing uh, in your understanding of who God is and uh, God's righteousness. But I also told you this story that to a certain extent, her willingness to stand up to the strong male establishment was kind of what drew attention to her. And in her criticisms of, say, consequentialism, um, which was a, a, a book that she wrote, I think, or an essay called Intentionality, where she really took on these dominant uh, views of what morality is to show why, say, doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people was not great moral guidance. Because, for instance, does that mean you can go find a drug addict who has a really good heart and a really good liver, you can just harvest those from him because he is destroying them and putting him into some worthy person who should do it, who could use the heart and use the liver. You dehumanize this one person to give life to another because if that's your moral conscience, the greatest uh, number of, amount of good for the greatest number of people, why is that a bad thing? Why can't you just say that dropping the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima is a good thing doesn't matter how many innocent people are incinerated. It's because consequentialism and the idea of rule-based uh, rule morality, Immanuel Kant and deontological ethics, there's no absolutes. Things you just don't do. You don't kill a baby in the womb. You don't say it's a good thing. You understand why people do bad things, but you don't call it good. And in America, we call it good because, well, now she can go on to her career or she's saved from poverty because you hope it has these good effects, which really isn't borne out by the statistics, by the way. Um, but that's the argument for it because America has forgotten their absolutes. You don't 
take the life of an old person and call it a good, euthanasia. Um, you don't commit suicide and say, hey, it's a good. There are absolutes about human life. So my great story about Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, my third great story, is that there's, uh, you can see it online if you want to see it, but it's this picture of this old, rather stout woman being pulled away by four English bobbies uh, from her protest in front of an abortion clinic in England, where there just has not been the kind of uproar about abortion that you've found in the United States uh, and all the controversy I know you're very familiar with. But to see this Oxford professor being hauled off and that it's newsworthy enough that they would take her picture of it, there's salt as a preservative. There is light into darkness. There is a city on the hill. You know, sanctity. I don't know if Elizabeth Anscombe's a saint. She's kind of a character. But I know Teresa Lazoo is, and Francis of Assisi is. I think Father Kino is. I know that uh, St. Peter is. But in the people around us who put their, uh, I guess, reputations at risk, uh, who they are in front of others, like Elizabeth Anscombe did, Whatever else you might say about the role of grace in their life, you can see Jesus' preaching, salt, preserving, a, a threat to the corruption of humanity, a light, a city on a hill. So anyway, that's the gospel for this week. It's a way to think about morality in a convoluted way. Remember, for Catholics, virtue, ethics, uh, infused with charity, love of other people. Oh, life in this world's always going to be an imperfect happiness. Life in the next, something more. But in the battle between good and evil that follows our baptism, it's what kind of person are you becoming by the moral decisions you make? That's at the heart of virtue, ethics. The idea that virtue points to and participates in the good. Something to think about as you think about Catholic morality and you compare theology, which takes us beyond where philosophy can go because we have the gospel and the understanding of grace. And what happens when you talk to people who could only see goodness in this world, um, in this world terms, rules and the idea of I'm doing good? Be more worried about who you are in God's eyes. That is the Catholic understanding. God bless you, and until next time, this has been one more episode of Oral Valley Catholics. And God bless all you metaphysical animals out there. If you have a chance, read that book. What a lovely book. Take care. Bye-bye.